0: Hello and welcome back to a completely new and fresh Mud Between Your Toes podcast. In the first 50 episodes, I gave you an interfusion of narrations directly from my book and the occasional conversations with Pete Wood. I hope you enjoyed them despite my amateur dramatics voiceover. In this new series, I aim to bring you new conversations from fascinating people around the world people who have a connection with Zimbabwe, albeit at times rather tenuous. I hope you find them informative, interesting, and above all, entertaining. Hello, today's guest requires no introduction to many people who lived in Zimbabwe in the 1970s. Indeed, you may recognize her, as the voice of the Rhodesian Broadcasting Corporation. Jill Baker spent her childhood years in Matabeleland land before moving to Mashonaland at the age of 14. She studied music at the Guildhall School of Music in London while doing a business admin course. Back in Rhodesia, she worked as a journalist, news and documentary presenter and producer in radio and television for 15 years, becoming what I consider the voice of the RBC. Jill lives in Adelaide, South Australia and has written two books, Beloved African and The Horns, the first in her Zambezi trilogy. She also has a wonderful podcast called Land Between Two Rivers, but more of that later. So Jill Baker, welcome to Conversations with Peter Wood. Peter, thank you, and that's wonderful encouragement. <laughs> All that sort of thing. saying I was
1: the voice of the ZBC. Well, that's uh, well, something. Thank it's, you for the word.
0: It's, <laughs> it's, it's how I saw it anyway, and it's so good to hear your voice. And yeah. I cannot do this interview without talking about your time at the RBC in the 1970s. Arguably, and as I've already said, you may think otherwise, you have the most iconic voice in broadcasting in Rhodesia during those very turbulent times. I doubt if anyone of any color wouldn't recognize your dulcet tone. So please tell us a little about your time in the RBC scene. How, how did you get into journalism for a start?
1: Well, as often happens by accident. Um, I was, uh, UDI came along and we were farming at the time. So um, we were managing a farm. There were not a lot of jobs around, and so we said, well, we're going to have to go into Salisbury, as it was. And at the time, there was an advertisement from the RBC looking for somebody to act as a classical music compiler. So I thought, oh, I'll sign up for that. It was great. So in I went and I started compiling music for the morning and various classical programs. And then in doing that, of course I'd go into a studio and I became familiar with how to record and how to do all the technical side of it, basic technical stuff. And then one day I happened to walk in when dear old Leslie Sullivan had a heart attack. And he was on his early morning up, 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 up thing, but he wasn't very up, up, up that day. He was actually lying on the floor groaning and there was nobody else in the studio. This was the old broadcasting house. So I sort of rushed in and said, crumbs, what can I do? He said, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, just put the next. So I had to sit there and put on the next disc and then put on something else. And then a man walked through the door and said, I've got the news. I said, really? I am not reading it. He said, yes, you are. And he walked out, <laughs> it was a nightmare. <laughs> anyway, I read that bulletin. Next person who opened the door was a furious Keith Kennedy. How dare you go live on air? Anyway, that was the start. <laughs>
0: how, how fantastic. I mean, I feel I should mention to my listeners who weren't Zimbabwean or aren't Zimbabwean, the RBC, the Rhodesian Broadcasting Corporation, was world class, wasn't it? I mean, those presenters. Um, you've already mentioned, plus Martin Locke, Jeffrey Atkins, Alan Riddell. I mean, they were, they were extraordinarily well-talented, weren't they? We had an extraordinary
1: bunch. We really did. And we also had a few interesting renegades who really loved what we did after, well, with UDI. I'm not saying one of them who came out because of that, but one of the most talented was a man called Sy Jeffy. And Sy was just, he achieved... Extraordinary things, not only in um, production values and all the rest of it, but he really was absolutely outstanding in building a team together, getting us all working, getting us passionate about the place, and then gradually, of course, I moved from a lot of programming and and things into news almost full time and of course that was at a oh that was at a difficult time, Peter, because I would be scheduled on I don't know how it seemed to happen, but almost every time there was some ghastly thing that happened. And I think one of the hardest for me ever was having to read out the death notice of a very close friend. And uh, it was extraordinary because we knew he'd been killed and he'd died two weeks before we'd been to the funeral. And somehow the security force announcement was delayed. And I, I found it awfully hard to keep my emotion in check. Still do, even talking about it now. So they were very difficult times, and there was an interesting gap often between quarter to eight, which was the main bulletin, and then a little dicky one at ten. And, of course, the head of news at that time was Harvey Ward. Now, Harvey Ward was known as Red Under the Bed Harvey, which he probably was, (laughs) but he he was very well versed in what was happening in what he called the Prague Centre for Disinformation. And so I became very well aware of what really was happening at that time. And and much of which, of course, we just couldn't talk about But the whole team pulled together. It was, we were all good friends. We sparked each other off. We we encouraged each other. And then um, just before independence, Uh, the BBC came out and they wanted to restructure the organisation. And it was right that it was done because we'd had African service and English service and da-da-da-da. And they just wanted radios one, two, three and four. So um, they said to me, would I come up with a concept for Radio 3? Which I did. And so we got this whole thing together and they said, right, go. We had, I think, about five weeks to hire all the disc jockeys we want. We poached them unashamedly from the best places, four African, four European disc jockeys, and we built our studio. We were still painting that studio half an hour before we actually clicked over and and went on air. And it was a lovely, fresh, across different set of psychographics radio stations. So the appeal was sort of 45 to 20, young, vibrant, uh, and enormous listenership from all sides of the spectrum. It was tremendous. But we had a few hilarious times too because some of the African newsreaders really hadn't had much experience of newsreading and so we had a few rescues we had to make but despite that it was a wonderful wonderful program there were some incredible rescues among the Europeans I'm not saying it was just African by any means but wow some <laughs> awful things happened the people were very gracious and, and of course it just took all the listenership from everything else
0: I know I remember one news re- reader, um, a young black girl, and she, she was talking about Queen Elizabeth the 11th.
1: Yes, that was a good one.
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, uh, but we had another one, a chap called Robin Hood. I don't know where Robin is now, but I mean, he always suffered with that name anyway. But he introduced one of my classical programs as Waltz in a Flat. I said, <laughs> ah, no. <laughs>
0: I mean, uh, you know, I do remember you having the first thing you had to say when you started the news bulletin was security forces regret to announce the death and action of. So, as you say, that must have been absolutely awful every day, having to read the deaths uh, from the Civil War. But in in its heyday, Jill, uh, many famous and colorful people must have crossed the floor at Pockets Hill Um, Can you tell us one or two stories about some of those people?
1: (laughs) Well, two of them are standouts. One was a Russian model called, eh, her name has gone, Tatiana or something like that. And she was extremely long and extremely beautiful. And her English was not terrific. But uh, she gave the first few points and we ran out of conversation completely. So, well, what do you do to sort of keep yourself entertained? I paint my body, she said. I said, oh, really? What do you do? I got a quick note from through from Master Control, drop this subject. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she was interesting. The other interesting one was Victor Borgia. Ah. And of course, I was fascinated to talk to him. But he just had a really full on session of chatting to people and he was tired and he was very hard to interview. We got a few things out of him, but they were both memorably
0: dysfunctional interviews, shall I say. Other ones? How interesting. What was he doing in uh, Rhodesia at the time? You know, a lot of people just broke sanctions in
1: those days and, and came out. Yeah, it was amazing how many did. There were a lot of people who said, this is ridiculous, what is happening uh, here. And um, they came out and supported us. And, uh, you know, we had to be a bit careful about interviewing them because not all of them wanted to be known to be there. Absolutely. Or, uh, but it was an interesting time. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing about that country was it was never ordinary. Right from the very start, when King Mzulikazi went through there. Right through to now, it has never been ordinary. That place; it's always been the focus of the most extraordinary world attention, for a lot of the wrong reasons, in a l- number of times. But all that post-UDI time—I mean, the only other country that had ever declared independence from Britain was America,
0: of course. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, um, as a child, you grew up. Uh, is this true? You grew up. Um, with the leader of ZIPRA, uh, ZIPRA Joshua Nkomo, um, I mean you knew him well, did you?
1: Yes, I did. Um, Dad was headmaster of a school in Cholocho, uh, which was heartland of Matabililand, land, of course. Um, and the school eventually moved in 1942. The boys actually built, rebuilt it all themselves at Mzingwani. And Joshua, at that time, Dad spotted him quite early on because it was really difficult to get children into school at the right age so your school entry which we would normally regard as six or seven was for most of dad's pupils would have been in the early years 20 or 21 and you imagine dealing with that it was really difficult but joshua was one of the first to come in at the right sort of age so he was trying to look for Cambridge school certificate, probably at the age of about 21, 2021, 20, but he was almost, you know, the sort of the correct age to be there. So dad said to him, all right, I will do everything I can to make sure we can get you through to that stage. Would you come and be a carpentry tutor at Zingwane?" Which he did. So, and in the school holidays, he used to, mum didn't drive. So Joshua used to drive when we went to town He would drive us into town and look after me while Mum went shopping, and I was only about two or three at the time. But yes, I do remember him because he was a very striking young man, very striking, and very bright. And um,
0: yes, of course, of course. I mean, from our my point of view, he was a man. Well, he was a man both loved and vilified in equal degrees by all sides of the political spectrum. Absolutely. Um, what was he actually like as a person? Uh, Cause I have to say this as a child, I knew him simply. And, uh, you know, as a terrorist who was mm. instrumental in the shooting down of a passenger plane and gloating about it to the world press, but, mm. you know, obviously with hindsight, um, which is a wonderful thing, would he have made a better leader than Mugabe? Oh, unquestioning. Unquestioning. Um,
1: I think his greatest problem was that he was seen to be too soft. He didn't ever want to go to war for a start. And so that was result why there was this big split in Zapu. Those who were more keen to push the envelope more quickly and get things happening. um, Chikarema, some of the others, all broke away and formed Zanu at that time. I've I've forgotten the numbers, but the dates, but... um, it would have been in the early sixties and Joshua Nkormor kept holding out against that. He was slow to, to move, for example, to talk to the Russians when the Russians started talking to um, some of the ZAPU members and Cormor uh, held back all the time. And he was happy to get money for a printing press, but he didn't want to get money for arms. And so he was a reluctant fighter should we say. He always kept trying to see if there was another way and he became more and more vilified as being lacking courage etc etc. I don't think that was the case at all. I think his probably his greatest problem was that he'd had quite a lot of association with Europeans and had got to understand and appreciate the um, benefits of a democratic society that's Mm. probably all i can say but in amongst all of that too uh, there's a statement that he made and he said i'm only just coming to recognize that having one hour fight for freedom we are not free
0: wow wow and i mean that was hard for him and, of course, he became vice president in the new Zimbabwe, but then, of course, was exiled by, Muga- uh, by Robert Mugabe during mm. the, that terrible Gurukahundi where Mugabe's three brigade killed some 20,000 Indebeli. Oh, um, it was shocking. Yeah, this pr- pretty much neutered the powerful Indebeli nation, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it really did. I mean, for a start, uh, Nkomo was very much the preferred favourite at the Lancaster House talks, but Mugabe did him the dirty because they were going to fight as a joint patriotic front. And anyway, it's a long story, but Mugabe went his own way and didn't let Nkomo know about it until Nkomo had about two weeks to do the electioneering required. So he was really mucked up right from the very beginning. And I think that the thing that was absolutely appalling about Gukuruhunde was that he made sure Nkomo was um, minimised. He put Lookout Masuku and Dumiso Dabengwa in jail. Those were the two military leaders. um, So that they could not get their forces together. And when they were safely out of the way, that's when he sent Nangagwa in of course, to start the Kukuru Hunde. It was a shocking, shocking, shocking thing. And, you know, the Indebele's say, um, you know, the Catholic Justice and Peace Commission said they found evidence of at least 20,000 people killed. You talk to the Matabele's, they say, ah, 50,000.
0: 50,000, wow. 50,
1: It was massive genocide, Peter. It was dreadful.
0: You know the uh, can I can you just explain the difference between Ndebele and Matabili? Because I tend to jump between one and the other. The the people are the Amandebele
1: people, of the Indebele people. The term Matabele came about because when Mzilikati was storming through the northern transvaal in what was called the Nfekani, he was Just subduing tribes everywhere he went and building up his own people, they had come at that time from northern Mozambique, and um, because he again was trying to escape from Chaka, you know, it was a it was a kill or be killed situation, and he was he and his men had come down. The Kumalo family had come down from northern Mozambique, and were crossing across um, the Northern Transvaal, and the the tribes in the Northern Transvaal called them the Ma. Tebelé, the ones who came from the sea, so the, the people themselves call themselves Aman Debelé, which is, um, you know, their own way of saying Amma means of the Debelé. So there was a link there, but the people who were the tribes in the northern Transvaal called them Matebele. So I, I get a little bit pretentious sometimes, and I will I don't like spelling it Matabele. I spell it Matebele because that's actually the correct way of saying it. And dad used to use that. So I tend to do the same.
0: Right. Okay. You know, the British South Africa company, the BSAC, um, they decided that King Lobangula's sons were never going to be allowed to assume the Ndebeli kingship. So they exiled them to South Africa, didn't they? But very strangely, the grandchildren weren't exiled. So they were allowed to return to. Rhodesia, Um, but I I read the story that one of Lobengula's sons in in Jubi had two sons. One was called Rhodes, and the other was called Albert. I mean, imagine if um, the new king of the Matabili had been called Rhodes.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, history always rewrites itself, and the truth of the matter was that Rhodes... Actually, it's another fascinating story, I think. More and more than I look at what actually the way Rhodes constructed everything, he never intended Matabililand to be part of Mashonaland. You don't ever get two high courts in one country, you don't get two state buildings in one country, state houses. So, Matabililand was always intended to be under the rule of the chiefs. Now, it went wrong. Whether by accident or design, we all will never know. But the Matabele War unfortunately resulted in two very big battles, one of which was on the Bembezi River. And when Lobangula saw the smoke and heard the fire from that, he left Bulawayo and went where he was heading, actually, I think, for, to cross the Zambezi and try and establish a heartland over there. And that was all. A mistake in Rhodes' book. So Rhodes was determined to educate his sons properly. So they were never banished as current history would have it. They were actually sent to very good leading schools in South Africa. So that was why you get this appellation of Rhodes as, as one of them. And in fact it's one of Rhodes' sons who has just been inaugurated as the new king in Majumili land only
0: about a year ago oh my god that's I had no idea I mean yeah. Jill, Jill your knowledge of history is unbelievable um, <laughs> and since we're on the topic of history I'm really excited to discuss your podcasts land between two rivers I am loving them right now at as we record this, I think we're up to the coronation of King Lobengula. And I just can't wait for the the new podcast to come out.
1: (laughs) Well, it's fun. And Peter, it's been wonderful, the reaction it's been having. Um, I'm really thrilled with it. And most of all, I'm thrilled with the African reaction. I mean, inevitably, there are going to be some who say, that's absolutely wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. But you just talk it through with them. And everybody is starting to say, Why haven't we heard this history before? Because of course the tragedy was, and it was really in the Mugabe era because before that, the oral history was still passed down from father to son. It got mucked up the more the um, work became an ethos, of course, with the European um, settlement. But the oral history was still relatively intact up until the mid 70s. Since then, any of the kids born as born frees, as they call themselves, have had the most distorted view of not only the colonial history, but most certainly of the Matabele history, because there was no way in the world Mugabe was ever going to say the Matabele were better than he was. So you've got two massive chunks of history there that have been distorted almost beyond
0: recognition. But even during my education, Jill, I think that the Rhodesian government tended to twist the history a little bit to suit them. I, I, there, there are stories that I've never heard about and I thought I was quite well educated in the history of Southern Rhodesia. Um, and if anyone any of my listeners are interested in history, I really urge you to listen to Jill Baker's podcast. We'll give you the link later. Um, yeah.
1: There's no we- question, Peter. We, we didn't get enough history ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we were still a good old colony, you know? We learned about Robert Clive of India.
0: Absolutely. and um, we didn't learn we- our own history. It was infuriating. So I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind telling a story about... This is one I'd never heard before until I heard your podcast. And it's about a girl called Sarah Liebenberg and her brothers and the connection between King Mzilikazi, King Lobengula, Courtney Salu, Baden-Powell and Alan Quartermain. There's quite a few big names there.
1: Yeah, there are. Well, this little girl, it's one of those things, you know, where you... S- I mean, history is such an absolute so-and-so. It took me eight years of research to get this stuff together. And you would find the vested interests in almost every single report was terrifying. But every so often, you'd pick up a little gem there, and then suddenly it would link over the, Good gracious, I wonder if that was the same. Track it back, sure enough. And she was part of one of the boer treks which was going up in the great trek there was a huge one called headed by a man called potkitter but this one is was a sort of subset of that which was the liebenberg family and for some reason i mean potkitter understood that you could not cross the limpopo oh no it wasn't it was the Vaal. you could not cross the Vaal unless you had the permission of the chiefs ahead of you particularly as the matabilis had just got into that area So he was waiting to get permission from Mzillikasi to cross. Well, for whatever reason, the Liebenbergs decided to go on their own. And they went at three in the morning, they crossed the Vaal, and they got over to the other side, there was not a sign of anything. And so they outspanned all their oxen so that they could go and have a drink. And that's when the Metabele struck and they killed everybody except these three children. For some extraordinary reason, nobody knows why, they decided to give them to Mzilikazi as a present. Whether it was a trophy of war, I don't, I couldn't find that out. And I don't know what happened to the second little girl. All I, all the, the, the slightly traceable things are Sarah and her brother, the brother who became an Induna, and Sarah herself who was given as a slave to uh, Mzilikazi's last bride who was a Swazi princess and she had a very sickly baby. So Sarah we reckon was about 12 at that time when she was captured and so she went off and of course she would have brought little Jandu up as he was known in those days and often probably would have taken him through to the Matopas to spend time with the Mlimo because he spent a lot of time he was the, the chief spiritual head of the Matabele at that time um, and only records of her is that she died of snake bite in the Matopos at one time but it's not an unreasonable assumption to think that she would have worked with chieftain Kubata who wanted to make sure that somebody survived all the chiefs and the relatives of Mzillikasi being thrown off in Tabas and Duna. Now that happened when um, Mzilikatsi got back and he found that they were trying to inaugurate his oldest son, Nkuluman, as chief, because they thought Mzilikatsi was dead. He'd gone up up to the Zambezi and he'd been waylaid by the Makololo people and they had guns and, of course, Mzilikatsi still had the little short stabbing spears, the Itwa, and um, he had not a hope against them. So he was delayed. It took him nearly two years to get back again. But, of course, when the Bush telegraph reached him, that there were plans afoot he came back very quickly and he threw everybody who could have been listed as a collaborator off in and Duna. Now Chief Nkumbata would most certainly have been very keen to make sure at least one of the sons survived and so he um, probably in conjunction with Sarah would have taken him and hidden him in the Matopes. So it's a fascinating story.
0: Uh, you're talking Jabu you call you say that was the name of Lobangula
1: no, Jabu was my friend when I okay, was at child, sorry. and okay. Jabu No, the, 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 it's a, it's a bit complicated. I, because Dad was in African education, um, he had very good teachers on the staff. Only one of which came from Zimbabwe. He had been educated. His father had been far-sighted enough to send him down to South Africa for education. Now we're talking 1936 here, Peter, so it's a long time ago. And his name was Dabengwa. Now his son, Dumiso, was born on the same day that I was. And another member of dad's staff was Dembi Bulle, And his son, Ernest Bule, of course, was number two to Bishop Muserewa. So that was really that juxtaposition of another little boy called Prune um, Ernest and Dumiso and I that made me think there's a story to be told through the eyes of the four of us because we could not have had more divergent opinions. So that's uh, really how the Horns came about.
0: And, and so that's how you started writing uh, the Zambezi trilogy. Going, going back to Sarah Liebenberg, Jill, um, so what was, so she was basically the nanny of King Lobengula Yes, uh, well, he wasn't king then. And uh, what was the connection between Baden Powell, Courtney Salu, Alan Quatermain, King Solomon's Mines?
1: Well, because uh, he was obviously used to having a white person around. I mean, he would have just seen Sarah as part of his tribe. Um, he did speak a bit of Afrikaans, which she would have done. Um, he spoke pretty good English, which he never let anybody know. And his great friend was this um, Induna, Induna Sam. Now, again, it's speculation, but there are enough little shreds to suggest that that could have been Sarah's brother. And he was the only, only mentioned as the only white Induna ever in all those Matabele regiments. Now, he, Jandu or Lemgula Induna Sam, um, Courtney Salu, they all used to go hunting together. And, um, Robert Baden-Powell was not a regular member, but he did go up there quite often, but he was not so interested in the hunting as he was in the bush survival skills that he obviously would have learned from Loven So it was a time of daring do and, and most extraordinary romance. And, um, everybody thought, no, people thought they could achieve anything they wanted to. And the reason Alan Quatermain came into it was that Ryder Haggard's book, King Solomon's Mines, came out in the late 1800s, just at a time when everything was beginning to open up for that last little bit of land. Because, you know, that land between the two rivers was the last bit of land given away or colonized or anything in Africa because it was far inland. And because the Matavere were there and they were cheeky and and fierce and people just hadn't got there so everybody tried to get into this last little mysterious heart of land in the middle of the of the southern southern half of the country and Quartermaine of course found King Solomon's Mines and I mean that book I had to read it and laugh at what he said but it Ryder Haggard had had a job in Natal for a while, so he knew enough about Africa to be able to write with some authenticity. But this set the world aflame. You know, all the gold digging areas were giving up all around the world. This was going to be the new fantastic Queen of Sheba type gold digging area. And so that's why everybody descended on this poor little land between two rivers when King Lobengula
0: was in charge. Tough for him. Extraordinary. And, and, and you, you speak about, in your podcast, a lost golden opportunity. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yes. Um, this is going up to 1961. So it's quite ahead of where we are at the moment. Um, there was a lot of turmoil in the late 50s. The um, Garfield Todd was head that time and there was an interesting metamorphosis happening there. I I have always said and I think dad believed very much because he had to cope with a lot of the influx of it but after the second world war there was a big migration program mounted because we lost a lot of men in the second world war and we hadn't nearly enough Builders, road makers, infrastructure people—all of that sort of thing—that the, the colony needed—and so a bit of an equivalent of the sort of ten-pound palm in Australia, we got a huge influx of mainly artisan people with with those um, development-type skills, and they had all fought through a hideous war in England. They probably many of them had had their homes and their families and their lives destroyed. They came out to uh, Rhodesia in sort of forty seven forty eight and by the time it got to the mid fifties there were of course from schools such as Dad was running a huge number of very well educated Africans who had similar skills now now the people who'd come out from England there was no way they were going to risk losing again and from about the late or mid to late 50s they became a tremendous uh, not an apartheid but a move in that direction shall we say and that really was part of the reason that garfield todd was ousted because the cabinet itself became very much more protective there was a protectionist element came into that and then of course britain imposed the federation on us and the federation was obviously not working because Southern Rhodesia was so much more developed than Northern Rhodesia or Nyasaland. Northern Rhodesia and Nyasaland were both protectorates. We were a self-governing colony. So there was absolutely no fit there whatsoever. Northern Rhodesia and, and Nyasaland had been used to the chiefs running the place with help from Britain. We'd been used to running the place on our own as a company, a business. So with all of that, that huge swing Resulted in the breakup of federation and the appointment of a man called Edgar Whitehead. Now do you remember Edgar Whitehead? I know the name okay he was in television land he would never have made it because he was he was a boffin um, small short-sighted um, so academic that that he could hardly put two words in front of each other, but with a brain that you can you can hardly comprehend how how clever he was he produced the 1961 constitution working with joshua and Cuomo as a way forward 1961 constitution and como was delighted they'd managed to get a good number of africans onto the onto the roll. and como was a hundred percent behind it he was happy with how it, where it was going and it would have led to independence by approximately 1984 Unfortunately, a day or two days before the actual referendum was held, he got a notice from Leopold Takawira, who was his chap in Zambia, saying, how dare you sell our people out so cheaply. Takawira, unknown to him, was already talking to the Russians. So no wonder he had that perspective. And Nkomo pulled the plug if we'd had 1,000 more African votes, that 1961 constitution would have got through and it would have been a regular progression to black majority rule in 1984.
0: Without all the people being killed in between. That's hopefully. exactly right. Yeah. That, I mean- that, that
1: was what was missed.
0: I mean, Rhodesia as a colony was different to other colonies. I, I know this because my great-grandfather was a pioneer. Rhodes personally chose the pioneers because Britain wouldn't pay. Unlike any other colony, the people exactly. who came out to Rhodesia knew that they would never return to the UK with a, a, a comfy pension. So going out, going out to Rhodesia was going out for life, that made a huge difference on how white settlers felt about the country, didn't it? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Because apart from anything else, they had no right to go back to Britain, and um, they, they certainly got no pensions from Britain, and uh, that made an enormous difference. Because inevitably, there was going to be a big government administrative infrastructure all through the native departments and all the education and health, etc., etc. And none of those people ever got a British pension. So they knew exactly as you said, if you went out there, mate, you're going out to your home.
0: Quite brave, um, wasn't it, really? That's right. No other colony ever had
1: that same set of conditions.
0: So, Jill, the podcasts, as I said, were up to the coronation of Lobengula. You would bring them out every two weeks. Um, how, far every week, in, how, how far into modern Zimbabwe history are you going to take them?
1: Well, the first book, The Horns, uh, which is the one I've done the most research on, of course, goes through to UDI. Um, I've been researching book two, and that's going to take us from UDI through to 1980. And book three, I will be co-writing with a very bright Zimbabwean, young Zimbabwean. He's a lawyer and a journalist, and he and I will co-write book three because I left in 1983 I can't touch, smell, or feel it as I should to write about it with any authenticity. So, he and I will write that together, book three, and that will go for as long as it's relevant.
0: So, so the, point, the, Jill, the, the, the books are a, a fictional history of Southern Rhodesia. Um,
1: it, yes, it's historical
0: I... fiction which as I read it, it's very uh, interesting because you, there's a very fine line between who is real, who isn't real, what is real, what isn't real. Um, uh, And is Carol based on you? Loosely, yes. Right. Okay. Uh, It's quite fascinating how um, writing a historical, uh, fictional historical book, um, you know, you, you've kept to the facts as much as possible, haven't you?
1: Well, I have, and I've also absolutely, I mean, the, the skeleton is 100% accurate. And that's the skeleton on which I have built the fiction. Because you can sometimes tell a story better, um, told through the eyes of those who were actually physically there, rather than a historical narrative, which can be so dry as dust. Um, And for example, you know, to suddenly discover there was this extraordinary man in 1923, Len Harvey, who was with the Ministry of Agriculture in southern Rhodesia. And it was at a time when the world and his wife were saying, you must breed the local Nguni cattle in with your Angus and your Herefords to give them the protection they required in the tick bite fever and all that stuff um, and heat, etc., and everybody was embracing this. So the cattle farmers were all starting to crossbreed with the Nguni cattle. And Len Harvey in the department said, hang on, we have got to retrain that strain of Nguni cattle. We have to keep that intact. And he put forward such a good case that the government gave him a substantial amount of land down in Matabeleland to breed up the Thule and all of those cattle that we still know today as, as the, uh, the Nguni cattle. And it's a wonderful story. And then as I was researching through, I thought, well, how can I bring that story in? Because it's, it's so strong. And then blow me down. The first cattle auctions at which African farmers were allowed to hold an auction with Europeans came in on a date I was just about to write fantastic so in fictional terms you bind the two up you bind the accuracy of the date of the first cattle sale with the accuracy of Len harvey and you bind them into your fictional story as a major cattle sale taking place at mtubbers and duna fantastic
0: Absolutely brilliant. I'm loving reading it. It only arrived on Saturday because it was held up in Amazon during coronavirus, but um, I have it on my bedside and I'm reading it every day. It's, it's a wonderful book. I really recommend it to anyone. Going back to the podcast, um, your podcast and information about the book can be found on www.jillbakerauthor.com. I also found if you just go to YouTube, and you type in, I think it's uh, Jill Baker, The Horns, and you'll also get all the podcasts there. Mm. Um, Jill, where are you? Uh, I mean, I believe that you have an award from Australia. Um, What was that for? Uh, Well, when the
1: farms were being taken, Um, So this is sort of 2001, 2002. Um, I'd been over there to launch Beloved African. And in fact, my cousin's farm was, I think the second farm to be taken. And he was at the launch when he came up to me and said, I'm sorry, Julie, I've got to go Trouble on the farm. So it had come home to me very, very much so. And so many friends, because we had farmed at one time, so many people lost everything. And so I went to the Australian government and I said, look, we have a potential here to really correct the problems when interest rates here went up to 17%, which meant that in farming areas, the farmers simply could not exist with interest rates at that high. So all your country areas started depleting of people and there were just beautiful country areas that had been taken over by those who could into great big rather unmanageable ranches and things and I said to them we have some of the most educated excellent agricultural people with nowhere to go can we possibly create some sort of mechanism whereby we could get them into Australia well it as often happens with these things it just struck a nerve And we ended up bringing in about, oh, well over 300 families, not just farmers, but they were all the um, monopoly, you know, the the follow on effects of that too. So a lot of African diesel mechanics, a lot of technicians, electric, electrical people, um, they all came in as well. Nurses, lots of nurses. So over 300 families, the bulk of them were farmers were able to gain access to Australia that they would not have got otherwise. And for some extraordinary reason, Australia gave me the award. I thought, gosh, that's an incredible country to award somebody for bringing their own people <laughs> into the country. <laughs> yes, so- Fr- I don't know how I got it, but that's
0: how it happened. The Australian Order of Merit. I mean, yeah, I know you think about uh, the US and Britain right now and they're closing their borders and you managed to do something like this. Congratulations. We are actually running out of time. So I want want to go uh, just reiterate People can find all the information on the books and the podcasts on jillbakerauthor.com. It's definitely worth uh, going and having a look and listening to these podcasts. They're fascinating. You have another book called Beloved African. I haven't spoken about that because I haven't actually read it. Um, Could you very quickly tell us about Beloved African?
1: Yes, again, this is really a story. Uh, it's about my father. So it's very biographical. It's about what he was trying to do in African education at a time when it wasn't really terribly popular to be educating Africans. And um, he was a strict Gordonston type headmaster, insisted on valor and excellence and courage and ended up at one time firing an entire school. Um, Because they were so out of hand. So he had something of a reputation, but, but some of the people he produced were absolutely excellent. So it's a story about that and my very English mother and how she just battled with living in a funny place called Southern Rhodesia.
0: Brilliant. It sounds wonderful. Um, Jill Baker, sadly, we are out of time. Um, It's been an honour to listen to you again and hear your voice after all these years. And I really, I I really look forward to your new episode. So when is the next episode out? Uh, They come out every
1: Friday. So 7am New Zealand time, which means they go around the world on Fridays.
0: That's absolutely fantastic. Jill Baker, thanks so much for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Great, Peter. Good talking to you. Thanks, sir. Bye. Bye. How about that for an iconic voice to take you back down memory lane? Jill Baker speaking to me from Adelaide, Australia. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, blueberry and pocket casts don't forget you can always buy a copy of my book on both amazon and kindle and i also welcome comments by email on mud at gmail.com if you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in rhodesia and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for mud between your toes feel free to write to me goodbye